Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. This morning we return to that passage, that, that portion of Scripture. Uh, we were working through in October and up until Thanksgiving. We took a hiatus during the holidays and focused on the theme of Advent, Thanksgiving, and then uh, for the new year. Uh, but at the same time, we now have opportunity to come back and look at these, this section as we look at these last two portions, uh, one this week, one next week, uh, about the kingdom of God. As we began this series, uh, we, I, I shared with you that this is a portion that Jesus used a series of stories to give us a glimpse of different aspects, different truths about the kingdom of God. I'll refrain from going through each of the different uh, messages I've already preached, but there are two things that are important to remember not only today, but always when we think of the, of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Uh, one of which is the definition of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the reign of Christ in the hearts and the lives of God's people everywhere. It's important that we understand that because it has different dimensions. There's an aspect in which it's the reign of Christ is geographical. Jesus has said that his kingdom will span the entire earth. He's calling people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And yet sometimes we can become so focused on that outward mission that we fail to actually evaluate whether Christ is reigning in our own hearts. We just assume it. And we have different aspects of our lives where we keep dominion over and we do not yield them to Christ. And so Christ's kingdom continues to expand in us when we realize that Jesus must reign in our hearts. And I would suggest to you that the most powerful effect that we will have in our community and among the nations is when Christ is reigning in our hearts and we go boldly and humbly to the people around us rather than trying to make people conform to become like us. We are being conformed to be like Jesus. So the definition of the kingdom of heaven is the reign of Christ in the hearts and lives of his people everywhere. The second thing it's important for us to remember is that the kingdom is at hand and it is also coming. In other words, it is now, but it is also not yet. When Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom. Jesus is the king. Wherever his people who have been called by his name, we are his citizens. His kingdom exists in our midst. It knows no geographical boundaries. The kingdom exists now. We have a taste of it when we are in fellowship with Christ and having godly fellowship with one another. And yet we do have pain and sorrows, and we continue to stumble because we have sin. It's because the kingdom, while it is here, has not been fully manifest. Jesus has promised that he will come again, and the kingdom will be made full, and all of the promises will be happening then. It's important to know that it's here now, because it's not just something that is to come, and it's important to know that what is here now is not all that is to come, because it answers our questions, and it answers our longings. And so with those, understand, those uh, parameters, just as reminders of our, our doctrine, our understanding of the kingdom, uh, we come now back again to Jesus' stories, Jesus' parables, helping us to understand the kingdom that he has inaugurated and that he has promised to come. Let's turn, turn in our Bibles to Matthew 13. Our reading this morning will begin in verse 47, continue through verse 50. the word of God. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea 
and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May the Lord give us understanding from his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, as we have read your word, and as we commit ourselves to studying your word during this time, we do pray that your spirit would open our eyes and our hearts and speak to us. For apart from your spirit speaking to us, we may glean truth, but we will never have understanding. We are in need of you to be at work in us. We pray that we come with a predisposition to be obedient to what you call us to, to be reflective uh, of what we see and, and what we learn. We pray that you would use this to shape us, renewing our minds to think your thoughts after you, renewing our lives that they would be in conformity to what we know to be true. Lord, shape us, knit us together, build us up until we all reach full maturity in Christ, that you would be glorified in our midst and by our lives. Lord, we pray this in the name of the Word who was incarnated, Jesus Christ. Amen. Mystery. Webster defines it as something that has profound, inexplicable, or secretive qualities. Being a little simpler, I would define it as just something I don't understand or something that seems suspicious. But however you define yeah, mystery, I think we would all agree that whether it's Kennedy assassination or Stonehenge or a, an episode of Scooby-Doo, uh, a mystery always intrigues us. It captures our attention. We want to delve in and, and we want to learn more. The Apostle Paul uses the word mystery in reference to the gospel on a number of occasions. I've counted 15 in his letters. Uh, it might be surprising that he uses it as, uh, in that way or that often, but he, he talks about the gospel that we celebrate and that we proclaim as being a mystery. For instance, in, in Romans 16, he says this, Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages, ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey, in him, obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And Paul also says in, in Colossians, very similarly, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Just a couple of the examples of what Paul talks about when he's declaring the gospel, the gospel that we celebrate, the gospel that is our hope, he says it's a mystery. Now we understand it's a mystery in one sense when Paul says it's because it was hidden for long ages past, but it has now been revealed to us. We understand that part is mystery. But Paul also means there's a mysterious aspect to it that while we know the components and it's now been revealed, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. It's so profound, it's so complex, and so deep. We can grow in our understanding of it, but we will never exhaust its meaning. And to that end, it continues to be a mystery. 
there are theological mysteries and there are practical mysteries. Theological mysteries are those things pertaining to the gospel itself. Practical mysteries, even as we sang a moment ago, is why did we benefit? I don't know. I only know that we have. Jesus also uses the word mystery, which I find interesting, when he's describing the kingdom of heaven. In verse 11 of Matthew 13, Jesus says this as he's speaking to the disciples. He says, and he answered them. They had a question for him. We have to understand the context. Jesus started in on these teachings about the kingdom, and he started teaching in parables, and the disciples said, that's nice. Why are you telling me these things? And Jesus answered them, and he says, it has been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The word secrets there in the Greek is the Greek word mysterion, from which we get the word mystery. In other words, what uh, Jesus is specifically saying is to you, to his disciples, to his followers, God has decided in his grace to make known mysteries that are not being made known to others. Jesus is speaking of mysteries in a very similar way that the Apostle Paul does, which it kind of would prompt some of us to ask the question is, is are they saying it's a mystery in the same way that it's something that we might find in an Agatha Christie novel? And the answer to that is it's no. There are similarities, but there is something that is, is very, very different. While in a, maybe a Sherlock Holmes story, Sherlock Holmes would look at all the facts and he would come to a conclusion. He would deduce a conclusion, and, and the mystery would be revealed in that way. Spiritual mysteries are not deduced. Spiritual mysteries are not some truth lying in, a dark, in the darkness uh, waiting for somebody to stumble upon it so that they, they might be understood. Spiritual mysteries must be revealed. In fact, that's Webster's primary definition. Uh, what I read earlier, what I cited earlier, is, is not the first definition. If you look under Webster, Webster says this about a mystery. A mystery is a truth that man can know by revelation alone and cannot fully understand. That's what Paul, that's what Jesus are talking about when they say that there is a mystery. Spiritual mysteries must, are known only by spiritual means, by grace and then through faith. Jesus is speaking here, reminding us that he is revealing to us the mysteries, the secrets of the kingdom. He wants us to understand. Jesus is revealing these things. He's making known the mysteries of the kingdom so that we can have delight in it now and so that we can also anticipate the glory that is still yet to come. And Jesus, in this particular mystery, in this particular parable about the kingdom, is saying to us that we need to understand that as far as the kingdom goes, there are some who are in the net and yet still outside of Jesus, outside of Christ. What I want to do this morning is kind of break this down. I don't want anybody to be shocked or to be particularly afraid when I say I have five points and I only usually have three. But I want to look at some words and then follow the flow of what Jesus says in this parable so that we can kind of mine the gems of what he is giving to us in this parable. And the first thing we need to look at is the net. That seems to be the focus of what he's, he's talking about in this particular parable because he says it's the kingdom of God is like a net that fishermen were dropping. And what Jesus is using is, as an analogy is just a very common fish, uh, fishing net that were used by commercial, commercial fishermen. 
he's just saying that it's, it's a very similar thing in, in, in this, is that in this net that is used and kind of dragged along uh, and catches up where all the fish are caught, that in, in many senses is what the kingdom is like. What we need to understand is when he's talking about the net, he's using the net as an analogy, as a picture of the church. If you think about what he says about the net, it kind of makes sense. He says the net gathers up all kinds of fish. Jesus says, I'm gathering people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So every race, every ethnicity, people's gathering all, Jesus is gathering all kinds of people into his net. We could go in other ways, not specifically stated, but the principle is clearly there. Jesus is gathering all kinds of people, not just by racial, ethnic, or gender. Jesus is gathering people from different backgrounds with different temperaments and different personalities. So there's all of us here. We're all, in many ways, very different. Jesus is also gathering people who have been broken in different ways and who are impacted by sin that is upon them and sin that is within them in different ways, gathering up all kinds of different people. And the church here is in mind. One of the reasons that we're able to know that, again, is, is the language that is used, perhaps not so much in the English, but in the Greek. I don't normally do Greek lessons, and so, but it's, 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 it's pertinent because when Jesus is saying here, they are gathered up in the net, the word that is, the Greek word there is synagogusen. You'll remember that, I know, and talk about that over lunch. But it's, from, it's similar to the word, something that you're familiar with, synagogue. It just simply means to gather. Synagogue means the gathering. And the church is the ecclesia. It's the gathering, the assembling of, of the people. And the picture here that Jesus begins saying the kingdom of heaven is like a net, and the net gathers all kinds of people. We begin seeing that Jesus is saying we need to understand something about the nature of the church and understand it now and understand what it will be. But with all kinds of people, Jesus doesn't say it's just a net that should gather all kinds of people. Jesus makes a distinction here in this passage and two types of people. And he does so when he refers to the second word we'll look at is, is judgment. Jesus says that there's a, there's a time where there's going to be a judgment that is going to separate the righteous and the evil. Now, if you remember our series, you might think to this passage, and it looks similar. There's a lot of similarities between this illustration and the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Both of them deal with different kinds of people. Both of them deal with people that are both good and evil, and they're, they're, they're similar in that way. Now, they're different in this way, whereas the parable of the wheat and the weeds is intended to help us to understand why in this world there are people who are, are good and why there are people who are evil and they're intermingled in, in this world, and it answers that question and gives promises of what will happen in the world. The parable of the net is more concerned with the church and the people in the church. Why are there people that are both righteous and unrighteous, righteous and evil in the church? Why are there believers and unbelievers in any expression of the visible church? We examine those who want to be members and we ask for professions of faith and we try to be diligent and discerning as best that we are able to. In every church I've been a part of, and I doubt this church will prove to be any different, we have been diligent about that and no doubt there have been some who have known the words, expressed a testimony, and we have allowed to join the church because, you know, we don't know the heart, and they have not been believers. I've also had the experience where somebody just, not only because they didn't know the right words, but it just was difficult to determine. There was an inconsistency. They may have already been brought into the kingdom, but they had not yet come to a point 
that they were able to express or articulate they were born again, but perhaps we missed it and perhaps we delayed their joining the church, not because we wanted to prohibit anyone. This church will be no different. They'd be foolish to assume otherwise. But Jesus says in this parable that there will come a day when a judgment will take place. Those who are the true believers, those who belong to him, will be put in one side. And those who do not belong to him, those who are wicked, will be put in, in another place. He says that is coming, that is definite, and that, uh, th- that will take place. But what he doesn't do in this passage is give us a bullet point list to be able to tell the difference. There's no list here that says, now if you vote this way, you're a believer if you vote. If you don't vote this way, if you dance, you're over here. And if you dan- don't dance, and notice I'm not telling you where the dancers go, but uh, I just promise not to be among them. But um, we don't have that kind of legalistic list that many of us wish we would, and, and some of us, in God's absence of doing it, we decided to write one up for him and assume that those become the standards for the church. That's not what he is saying here. He doesn't give us anything. He just tells us that in some cases... People will walk side by side, and some people will look very much like everybody else, and yet the reality is when the time comes for proof, it, it will be shown that they are not real. In my own past, I, I, I just kind of think of a, instances in my own past where I found this to be true when I was in college. As some of you know, I had the opportunity to be part of the football team at the University of Tennessee. Now, one thing that was seemed weird to me then and continues to seem weird to me today and continues to be odd is that there were guys on campus who would offer big bucks for the stuff that we were given in war. I was offered 50 bucks for my practice shoes and 50 bucks for my, for my practice cleats. Now, 50 bucks was a lot of money back then and in Tennessee when everybody doesn't have shoes. I'm, just, uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, but that's, I grew up in Philadelphia and there were people that wondered that at one point. Um, so, you know, <laughs> And so what are you going to do with turf shoes and cleats? People would buy sweatpants and wristbands. I was offered money for a chin strap. What are you going to do with a chin strap? But guys would wear our stuff around campus and pass themselves off as they were part of the team. Now, I mean, how do you tell? I mean, there's certain characteristics in some ways. I mean, if the guy's, you know, four foot nine, 97 pounds, chances are that he's not on the team. But there are some others, and, and so you can't, and, and the primary thing that, that is helpful for us, the understanding is you cannot tell by outward signs. In the church, many are baptized, but baptism, while it is important and it is essential to being a member of the church, is not evidence of belonging to Jesus Christ. Because there are many who have been baptized who are not in Christ. They are in the net, but they do not belong to Christ. And Jesus is saying, look, the net is gathering all types, and some are righteous, some are not. Some belong to Jesus, some do not belong to Jesus. But the primary thing he wants us to understand is there is going to be a time when a judgment is coming and they will be discerned. What we look at and assume to be the right standard on the outward or through the actions may or may not be giving us a true picture. I think Paul summarizes it very well when he says, look, the only thing that matters is faith that expresses itself through love. Jesus says that at that judgment, there's going to come a time of separation. And that'll be our third word we look at. For several summers, we vacationed at Fripp Island in South Carolina. Fripp is 
uh, a, a nice gated community that is uh, right near uh, Beaufort, South Carolina and, and Paris Island. Overall in vacation recommendations, I would recommend Fripp and I would not recommend Paris Island for vacation. Um, but between in that area, between Beaufort and then the two islands, there are several little fishing areas and, and continue to be active shrimping areas. If you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump, that was where it was filmed. And Forrest Boat is still in commission, going out every day and coming back in every afternoon uh, with, with the shrimp. And what those fishermen, the shrimp fishermen do is they go out with their big nets, much like Jesus is describing in our picture here, is they go out and they drop the nets and they drag the nets and they pull up everything across the bottom, everything that comes into their wake. And then when the nets get full and heavy, people will pull them up and they, pull them and they dump all of the contents of the net out onto the deck of the boat where the workers will then begin to sort what they pulled up. And they'll throw the shrimp over into this pile, and if they pick up a starfish or some other type of seafood, they'll throw it in another pile. If they picked up somebody's old work boots and car tires, they throw them someplace else, and then they bring them back in, and then they take the things that are marketable, and they sell them to market, and they take the shrimp, and they take them to the shrimpers, and then they discard all the things that are pieces of trash. And it's really a picture of what Jesus is describing in his net. He's picking up all sorts of people all sorts of people, everything that it gets caught up in the net. And he says, but there is going to come a time of separation. And rather than multiple piles, there's only two piles. The difference, though, is that in the fishing industry, and guys are sorting things out on the deck, it's not hard to imagine that every once in a while, you know, a little piece of shrimp gets tossed over, it's stuck in somebody's old work boot or some other piece of trash. And so something that really is what they wanted is, is discarded. Or something else kind of gets stuck to a piece of shrimp or something else and, and actually accidentally gets at least through and, and gets counted. And the separation that comes in the judgment that God has commissioned his angels to do, nothing that should be kept is, is discarded and nothing that should be discarded is kept. It will be done perfectly according to God's standards and God's commission. The question that we need to ask ourselves then is, what is the standard? What is the criteria uh, of what pile? And Jesus does give us this definition here. He says that the, dis the distinctions will be between the righteous and the wicked. Those are the two piles. So it's helpful for us to consider what that means. And we need to first and foremost be clear that the wicked are not just the drug dealers, the thieves, and the murderers of our society. The wicked is the default position of every heart, of every person who has been born after the fall. All of us, our natural state is as wicked. We need to be very clear that that's the Bible. That's not what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's, just, he's telling us the categories, and we are left to understand from all of Scripture, and this is what the teaching of Scripture is, is that the default position, the default condition of every person, every individual, falls into the category of wicked unless something happens. And that something is that somehow we get classified among the righteous. 
Now, that's where I think a lot of churches, and even conservative and evangelical churches, sometimes get confused as to what does that mean. Now, I hope everybody here wants to be numbered among the righteous. I hope everybody wants to be righteous. But we need to be clear about what righteousness is. Because so often, righteousness is misunderstood. Too often, righteousness is understood as simply doing the right things or doing good things. We weigh things out. If I do more good than bad, then I I, I declare myself to be righteous. I assume I'm part of the righteous group. Or if I've simply never done anything that's just heinous and evil, then I'm not part of the really wicked group because, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm more good than I am bad. And so we declare ourselves righteous. The Bible knows nothing of that. The Scripture says this, is apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. And so the idea that you and I might go out and do good things, even in one sense godly things, evangelism, teaching, serving the poor, things that Jesus himself did, and think that that puts us in the category of righteous, we are mistaken. Jesus himself encountered a group of people, and he said, in that day, I'm going to gather some, and I'm going to tell others, be departed. And people are going to say, what do you mean you don't know me? Didn't we do these things all in your name? And Jesus said, I I don't know you. It's not, righteousness is not primarily about our actions. But righteousness is not without our action. But before we get to our action, we need the intermediate and the declaration, the change that that makes us understand what righteousness actually is. When Jesus says, apart from me, no one comes to the Father, Scripture tells us that apart from faith in what Jesus has done, not just faith that there's a God, that there's there's a Son, but trusting that what Jesus has done for us, that he took our penalty, he took our punishment, he died the death we should die and raised to life so that we might live. It's faith in that action, faith in the gospel. That's not only what pleases God, but God tells us in the Scripture that when we believe that, we are declared to have the full righteousness of Jesus Christ. We don't have it ourselves. It's a credit card, not a debit card. We are declared to have the credit that really belongs to Jesus, but we have full spending capacity. It belongs to someone else, but it's in our possession. We're declared to be righteous, and it comes by faith. Now, there's the difference right there, but the Scriptures, and where people then confuse this, is some people also then have theological righteousness. Because I believe this, because my doctrine is correct, and I will say, we Reformed Presbyterians or Reformed Baptists, we probably are the worst in having doctrinal righteousness. There is something that is so rich in our theological tradition and our heritage that it becomes intoxicating, and we act like we're intoxicated. gospel says that's how we become declared righteous, and that puts us in that category. But those who truly have that, there is an effect on their lives. Because we're told that if we belong to Christ, then there's going to be an impact on the way that we live. We believe, and then there is a transformation that takes place. Jesus is declaring righteousness, and the foundation of that righteousness is belief in him. But when we are in Christ, we are also told to develop and grow in what we call actual righteousness. Again, using the theological terms, there's declared righteousness or imputed righteousness, but then there's actual righteousness, which are the things that we do in response to the faith that we have. 
And if I was to give a definition of righteousness, it would be this. It would be right action propelled by right faith. See, we can do the right things, but if it's not propelled by faith, it's not righteous. And therefore, it's not pleasing to God. And we can do amazing, tremendous good things and still be counted among the evil. But as James points out to us, we can also declare ourselves to be among those who are righteous. But if there is no evidence in our life, then we are kidding ourselves. And for anyone who thinks that Paul and James are at odds with one another, go back to Galatians 5, 6, which I cited earlier. And we look at that verse and Paul says, look, let's just cut to the chase. The only thing that matters is faith that expresses itself through love. There's actually the biblical definition of righteousness. It's faith by which we are declared righteous and by which we are able to please God because we are believing the gospel and it expresses itself through love to God, to others, to the nations. It's, it's faith in action. That is righteousness. It's not the action and it's not just the faith, but righteousness is faith that propels us to action. Jesus says, look, here's the criteria by which we are going to look. Here's the distinction. When that time of judgment comes, in this net, in this church, when the time of judgment comes and the, the angels are going to do the separation, here's what they're going to be looking for. Those who have faith in what Jesus has done that is beginning to change them and moves them outwardly. And those who are either just self-absorbed or consider themselves good or who just do heinous things, they're all in that same category. Those are the distinctions. The last thing I want to look at is the promise, the permanence of the promise that Jesus says. Jesus says that they'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. Now think about that from a permanent standpoint. We know the place is the fiery furnace. Think about it in your own house. If you have an older house that has a furnace in it or, or a fireplace and you throw something in there, how long does it take before it comes back? It's gone. You burn something up in the furnace, it's not coming back. It's there and it's, it's permanent. And what Jesus is saying is when they're put in this place and thrown in the fiery furnace, it's a permanent condition, a permanent status. But the difference between the furnace and what Jesus is saying here and Jesus is here telling us that there is a reality of hell, even though that is not a popular doctrine, it is nevertheless what the Bible teaches. He says that while it is permanent and it is agonizing and it is burning, he says there's also life that continues because he says in that place there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, you don't weep if you're not alive. You don't gnash your teeth if you're not alive. And so that it is a permanent place permanent condition once that separation takes place. Now, for some reason, Jesus wants us to understand this. And that suggests to me that it's important for us to know and to remember. It's a call for us to say that we can know all the things about the kingdom, but unless we are part of it. It does us no good. It's just a pure evangelistic parable leading to a pure evangelistic message. Every one of us should be looking into our own lives and into our own hearts right now and saying, now, I'm in the net because I'm here. But am I in Christ? Here are some ways that we're able to know. 
The one who is in Christ is the one who is trusting in Christ alone for salvation. It's not a matter of I believe in Jesus and I'm good. But it's the one who's come to grips with the reality that you're not good. Whether you're better than everybody else or not, God is not grading on any kind of a curved system. You are impure and you are hopeless. And no matter how hard you try, you will not perfect yourself. And the only hope that you have is in Jesus. And the person who is in Christ is the one who realizes that I, am, I have no hope except for Jesus, but at the same time, Jesus is the only hope that I need. And he has been offered, and he has been given to me. And that person, having come to grips with this, realizing and experiencing the love of God that has been given in Jesus, loves God in response can't give you a quantity or a qualification of that love because the scripture says that we're all in process and we may be in different places but when we respond to the love that we know that's been extended to us that is a good indication that you are one who are, is in Christ you are in the pile of the righteous the pile of the wicked is not again just those who have done horrible horrible things to humanity the fact is, many of the people who are in the pile of the wicked are better people than I am. And they've done better things. And many of the people in the pile of the wicked are also people who believe that Jesus came in the flesh and that Jesus died and Jesus rose again. But they just have difficulty with some aspect of the gospel and appropriating it for themselves. It may be this. I'm glad Jesus came and died for all those messed up people, but I'm pretty good. You just have not come to grips with the reality of your own sinfulness. And so therefore, you have no love for Christ. You just think it was nice that he would come and die for people. And so while you believe all the right doctrines, you have not appropriated it because you don't even think you have a need of it. It's nice to know it's there if you need it. Maybe you'll avail yourself if you need it but you have not appropriated it and you're not even sure of that because your doctrine is so sound. There are others, and I find this very common, and it's, it's both saddening and sometimes heartening when there are people who are all too well aware of their brokenness. And they know that Jesus came and Jesus died and extends love but they are so deep in despair of their brokenness that they find it difficult to believe that Jesus would give himself for someone like you. If that's where you find yourself, then I would just want to encourage you now or at any time we talk is to just begin to pray the prayer that Paul says that we all ought to be praying. Paul said he was praying we would come and grow and to know how high and wide and long and deep is the love of God in Jesus. We don't understand, but we're going to grow in our understanding of that so that you, having prayed that, having asking God, trusting that God will, will open your eyes, you will see that there's nothing that would keep you from Jesus except for you. Why does Jesus tell the story? And even more profound, why does he give himself for us? I don't know. It's a mystery. 
fact that it remains mysterious in many ways does not mitigate its truth or its importance. So very simply for all of us here today, I would ask you to ask yourself, are you in the net and in Christ? Or are you in the net and outside of Christ? May God in his grace open our eyes to see and lead us to respond. Father, as we consider your word, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our lives and in our hearts, that we would never move from this message that you have revealed through Jesus to your disciples. And as we consider it in this form of this parable, we realize that it's important for us to consider that it's not merely a foundational thing, but it is an ongoing question. I pray, Lord, that we, realizing that we are in one category or the other, if we are trusting in you, take you at your word, and therefore have assurance according to your promise. If we, on the other hand, are those who either stand feeling condemned or stand in our own righteousness, Lord, I pray that in your mercy you would break them and draw them that they may know you. Lord, you are the hope of the world and the hope of my life. I offer my prayer in the name of Jesus.